Hey guys, Eric here, and I want to talk to you real quick about the dailydownforce.com. Every day, this website covers the latest news and trends in NASCAR, from silly season right through the checkered flag in Phoenix. Need a new morning routine as soon as you wake up? Well, now you have it, dailydownforce.com. This is the website I use to keep up with the industry, the drivers, and of course, what the community is talking about. And speaking of community, dailydownforce.com is also home to some of your other favorite NASCAR content creators. Plus, they've got all sorts of information that I like to keep bookmarked, like schedules, penalties, ratings, and everything you want to know. Oh, and be sure to check out the merch shop while you're there to find some exclusive diecasts and collectibles. So check out dailydownforce.com, that's dailydownforce.com, and I'll see you in the replies. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. You know, I think they were, they had, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Bought Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item packed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, 
America's racing showplace. That was one of my biggest life lessons I ever learned. You know, used to, you know, don't chase the money. I'm an older guy now, and uh, I would have never admitted this. I knew the last race at Atlanta, I had messed up. I said, Richard Petty, seven-time Winston Cup champion, 200 races. He couldn't drive this son of a bitch. So how do you expect me to drive it? Uh, I just noticed Buck Baker out there warming up a few laps a while ago, and his car looking real good. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Same Vault Podcast, presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace, and a track that really does care about NASCAR history. Now, just a minute, Rick, before you go any further, I have something here that I want to read, okay? It's a what is it that you're going to read? It's a tweet, and it's from you. And you are, you know, promoting the podcast, of course. Okay. And you said right. in your tweet. I'm not sure tweet, I like where this is headed. Oh, well, <laughs> you're going to put up with it. I'll tell you that. <laughs> you said this week's episode is going to having something very special for old school race fans. Is going to happen, Rick? What kind of English is that? Now, well, this proves, one, it's incorrect. English. This proves <laughs> that anybody can make a typo, including Mr. Rick Houston. Well, Steve, all I can say in my defense is if you can't beat them, join them. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, welcome, you, in that case, welcome aboard. Typo, Rick. <laughs> they say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And, you know, you've always been my hero in motorsports journalism. And if you can make typos, I can make typos too. So that's <laughs> oh well, I agree with you, Rick. Sort of a backhanded compliment there, but I, I'll take it. You know, it's time for a Christmas break. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, this week in our first segment, we are going to share the third and final installment of my interview with Rick Wilson. And in this episode, he talks about the decision that he made to leave Morgan McClure Motorsports and how that might not have exactly worked out in his favor. He talks about being on the outside of the sport looking in and then his run with Petty Enterprises. Then in our second segment, we are going to do something a little different this week. Kind of as a little holiday gift for our old school listeners. Now I'm talking about really old school listeners. <laughs> yeah. This is a short interview that iconic early NASCAR journalist and PR rep Russ Catlin did with Buddy Schumann and Joe Weatherly going into the 1955 Southern 500 at Darlington. 1955. Now that is a long way back. And those are some old time names that helped bring the sport into reality and help to get to where it is today. And we're going to be joined by Ken Martin, who is the director of historical content for NASCAR productions. And we're going to discuss who Buddy Schumann and Russ Catlin were, you know, those aren't names that a lot of people are going to know today. And also Joe Weatherly. Now, you know, I think a lot of people are probably going to be a little more familiar with Joe because of his status as a 
two-time Grand National Champion, what's now NASCAR Cup, and also as a member of the NASCAR Hall of Fame. So Joe Weatherly is in this clip, and i got to be honest with you, it's the first time that I'm aware of that I ever heard his voice. I think it is the first time for me, too. It's also worth noting, Rick, that Buddy and Russ's names are on two significant NASCAR awards, one of which exists to this day. This week, we have new Patreon support from Terry Long and Leslie Jackson. And Leslie sent along a message when he signed up. And in part, Leslie said, you and Steve are like family to me. How about that? I like that. Man, every time I hear something like that, it is just so humbling. To be honest with you, that's what I consider every single one of our listeners to the podcast and every viewer on YouTube. We're all family. We're all in this thing together because we do have a shared interest, and that's NASCAR history. That's exactly right, Rick. That's why we're in the business we are right now, and I'm really thinking that our listeners are enjoying what we do, and I hope they continue to do so. So if you can, please support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal, support us by dropping a five-star rating and a written review on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you catch us on. If you can do a monthly show of support, you can do that via patreon.com slash the same vault podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the same vault podcast. Or if you would prefer to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast. And also, just as a reminder, this show is not affiliated in any way with American City Business Journal's owners of the same brand. You mentioned earlier you did make the decision to leave mm -hmm. at the end of the year. At what point did that start percolating in your mind? How did that come about? You mean about thinking about leaving? Uh, yeah. Or how, after how did I it? Left? Yeah. How did it come about that that you started? Uh, we were running real good. You know, we we were you know the four car we were really running good. We might not have had the wins, but we were one of the fastest cars wherever we went. And it got to be silly season, and here come people. You know, I'm just you know I'm you know I, I would drive these race cars for nothing, and did for a long time. And here people come and cup you know, offering lots of money to drive their cars. And, and that was one of my biggest life lessons I ever learned. You know, used to, you know, you, you know, don't, 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 don't chase the money, you know, chase the chase. And, uh, I was happy, content where I was at, but I mean, I was offered more money than I ever could believe could make in any, anywhere to drive somebody's race car. Yeah. And, uh, and I was thinking about the money and, uh, I tell everybody now, young kids coming up, don't chase the money. You know, be happy. I was happy where I was at. Not saying I wasn't happy, but yeah, I can. When I left the four team, I was not happy. And uh, we didn't run good. And that was probably a big moment in my career that things started not being like they should be or were. And so you said that you weren't happy at the four car? No, no, no. When I left the four car, okay. I was not happy. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll never forget. You know, I'm a I'm an older guy now, and uh, I wouldn't have never admitted this, but I remember sitting at I knew before I knew the last race at Atlanta I had messed up. I knew before uh, you ever moved. Before I ever moved. 
Did you really? Yeah. And uh, but deal was done. The deal was done. How did you know you? I just I didn't know, but I had a feeling. I just had a feeling in my heart. I just knew because I love these guys. Yeah. And we were running good. The other team was running good. That I was going to had been running good. But I just knew that I was put it this way. I was moving into a new chapter. But I had a feeling, and not down in nobody. But I remember sitting on pit road, and they right before they said crank your engines for that last race. I said to myself, this ain't good. I shouldn't have never done it, which I shouldn't. But that's behind, you know. I'm, I'm a man to admit it, you know. And I, you know, Larry McClure, they they gave me a chance when nobody else would. And that always kind of bothered me. You know, we get running good. They worked as just as hard as I'd worked. And, uh, you know, I, I, let, I let probably certain things come into play that I shouldn't have. And I take it back and look at it as one of those good life lessons. But I do promote it. I promote it with younger guys. I, it, I've told guys that left my hometown to go play pro ball. I've told them that story. I say, hey, don't follow the money. Play your game. Do enjoy what you're doing, and it will come by itself. And uh, so, what was Larry and Tony's reaction? Oh, it wasn't good. You know, I mean, it was like you know, like family breaking up. You know, yeah. and you know, Larry did everything that he could to keep me there. Like I say, nobody's fault but my own. And uh, yeah, that meant I, we can sit here and talk about it, but it's one of my worst decisions I ever made in my life. So you did run 90 with Ray Mock, and then you moved over to the Stavola Brothers, mm-hmm. 91. 92, you go into the 500, you run the 500, and that's it. Yep. What happened? Mm. All I'm going to say is I got hoodooed. <laughs> I'm not going to, you know <sighs> – I started seeing, you know, sport change a little bit. Not sport, but it wasn't that family. It wasn't that family that I was so used to being around. And, uh, you know, people, you know, people, you know, they do whatever they can do to protect their, their own butts, you know. We, you know, I, I drove for Stavola. I went, I wanted to drive for, you know, Stavola, uh, you know, getting back to, you know, when I, when I left the four car. Raymock team, known them guys all my life. Uh, they, they did some changing right there when I went to work for them, uh, crew chief wide and stuff. It just didn't work. I'm not going yeah. to sit there. It just yeah. didn't work. Yeah. Chemistry was not there. Yeah. So I had a three-year contract with them. We decided I'm going to move on, got out of it. Went, and really the only thing available was the Stavola Brothers, in which, you know, Billy and all them guys at Stavola Brothers, great people. Harry Hyde was the one I wanted to be with. Yeah. And, uh, and, and were, but we – we had Buicks. They weren't worth a flip, you know. Yeah. But that's what we had, yeah. you know. And so we, but we had Harry Hyde. We had equipment, you know. And we had some changing going on early in the year. Motor. They had a motor program that wasn't all that great. Had a good chassis program, but not. So they hired some people to come in on motor programs to upgrade the motor programs, which basically didn't happen yeah. and well you know how it is back then when things you don't run good or whatever if uh they, they sometimes point at the drivers or whoever but anyway it was okay i, I just wasn't happy there you know uh it didn't work out ran the one season went into changed to fords uh that could have had something to do with it 
Ford was involved in it more. They wanted, you know, but anyway, didn't work out. Went to Daytona, didn't work, run very well at all. Uh, and so, you know, they decided to change drivers, and uh, which was okay with me, you know. So I set out for that year, and uh, in the next year I got a ride with, with the King. After the 92 500, except for a, the Bristol night race that year, the Bush Series race, I think, with, with Charlie's team, mm-hmm. I think you did run it. How difficult was it for you to be on the sidelines? Oh, it bad. I didn't think they could have a race without me. You know, all, 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 all drivers think that. I, I wouldn't just, know anything about that. <laughs> yeah, all drivers think that. Oh, they can't have that race without me. It was, a lot it of was the media feel that way too. It, it was tough, but I, you know, it, I was, I was, you know, I was waking up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, had a, you know, had a, I wasn't as bulletproof as I thought I was. I want to, you know, I mean, you're early on in your career, you know, or, you know, get started, and, you know, we're all bulletproof, you know. And, uh, you know, we think that, you know, we're, we're it, you know. And uh, as you go down the pike a little bit, down the road a little bit, you understand that, you know, maybe you're not it, you know. You're, you, you're just like anybody else, you know. Things happen. And uh, But sitting on the sidelines and it made me very humble. Uh, like I said earlier, I mean, this being in this sport, uh, doing what you love to do above everything else other than God and family and get paid for it man you know but it it makes you humble you know it will humble you and uh and it you know it made me grow up a little bit and uh, i started looking at things a little different you know uh had a family started you know had a you know very been very blessed in our family businesses and uh i wanted to race you know but i kept going back to my times and i'll say it from this to the until the last day, the enjoyable times that I had with Larry and Tony, uh, with Charlie. There is racing and having a good rapport with the people around you, enjoying every minute of it, and there is racing when you, you don't have that. And it doesn't matter how much somebody pays you or what happens, at the end of the day, you want to be happy. And I miss that. I want to be happy. And uh, so... But sitting on the sidelines, that ain't no good. You know, and then when you go back and go home and do some short track racing, all you can think about is running, you know, cup. And everybody said, why aren't you running cup? You know? <laughs> What's the problem? Yeah, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. well, well I, you know, I don't have a ride, you know. so. Uh, but that was the turning point right there, you know. Uh, so I was fortunate enough that, you know, the king was retired. And, uh, and basically I was probably the, you know, I mean, there might have been a few out there he was looking at. And uh, you know, I was I got the call, so it, it was good. How did that come about? How what was the process like? I just kind of went and talked to him one day. I said, hey man, I mean I need a ride. I mean you need a driver, you're going to retire. And I'm sure there's a lot a lot of yeah. them did, you yeah. know. And, yeah. and I'd always got along good with King, and, and Kyle probably helped too. To be honest yeah. with you, me and Kyle were close. And uh, you know, back then I knew, we talked all the time, and and uh, you know, it, I, I really didn't think I was probably would get it. Uh, but I'm glad I did. You know, I mean, it was it was a great it was a great experience driving for King. King's a good guy, great guy. It was it was a pretty quick deal, wasn't it? Yeah. Because from what I remember, it was like maybe a week or two before you were announced, wasn't it? Yeah. That, that Matter you, of fact, we I don't think it was announced that we was in Atlanta last yeah, race. Yeah, 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 yeah. He had a big hoop dog there, and yeah. I come walking in, you know, like you uh, know, and uh, but 
uh, it was, uh, you know, and that was a tough year too. You know, the King, he, you know, we, I love the King. Me and the King got along good. Uh, and, and I had a guy that, the crew chief there, and this was another way, another reason why I know I probably got some inside help, uh, not, on, not only Kyle, uh, Robbie Loomis. He worked for me when he, he was 16 years old down here in Florida. Did he really? Yeah. He was, he, he built, yeah. He was my crew chief right here in Bartow. We run New Smyrna. We run all the short. I track. did not yeah. know that connection. I knew Robbie forever. And uh, matter of fact, uh, through working for me uh, and dealing with uh, uh, motor builders and, and, and I think it was, uh, was it Port City or somebody? That's who I used to get my chassis built. But anyway, he got a rapport with uh, that chassis builder, engine builder, and that's how he met, met uh, uh, Kyle. When he moved on, he wanted to go up and get and, – and, but anyway, through Kyle, he got a job working for Kyle and then went working for Richard and become a crew chief. So, but, uh, but it was uh, – that's how that got started. I had forgot about, about Robbie. But, but it, was a, it, was a good, it was a good experience. It happened quick. It did. So you're taking over for Richard Petty. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Did you have any kind of reservations going into that deal – because of that, because you, there was no way that you were going to, in my mind, there's no way that you're going to live up to. Oh, no. no there's no way. You know, anybody. I mean, you, you could have put Dale Earnhardt in that car. You could have put anybody into that car. What was your thinking about replacing him Well, being such an icon? Yeah, I mean, after, you know, it was pretty neat right off the bat because, you know, I'm, I'm the guy that got called to replace Richard Petty. Yeah. Uh, so that was kind of, you know, the, the, a couple years before then, I was pretty much you know, dragging the ground, yeah. you know, so that kind of got me, you know, give me a breath, you know, a breath of fresh air. And, uh, but I did know, I did know that it was going to be a tough road hoe. Uh, they had some, they had, Robbie was a great guy, good crew chief. Uh, King's a great guy, but I'm not saying everything they had was all that great. Right. You know, I, 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 Lord, I don't want to down anybody here, on, but yeah, just, yeah, it yeah. wasn't all that great stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I understood that going in. I understood. I was just wanting to ride, hoping to get on back down in, in, in on the deal. And as the years went on, as the year went on, it was a struggle. It was a struggle just to, to get that thing in the show. Uh, I remember we was at Riverside, not Riverside, uh, Sears Point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we, that, we got our first top ten at, at Sears Point. And uh, man, I was just tickled to death. And I, you know, we'd worked hard and hard, and and uh, it kind of, it kind of, be honest with you, from that point on, things got started getting rougher and rougher. And looking back on it, I got a pretty good idea why. And uh, you know, it just that's it, it, kind of a tough one to answer because I don't want to step on no toes. But you know the. I'll just tell you this story right here. You know, uh, Dale Inman, you know, good guy. Me and him didn't see eye to eye all the time. Dale's a different kind of guy, but good guy, been in the sport, very good at what he does. And uh, we, we were at, uh, we were at uh, Indianapolis. That was a, when they had the first practice session. We had run Michigan that weekend. We were at, we were at uh, Indy, but Michigan, I run the Bush car, should have won the race there. Uh, had a caution right there at the end. My old car took it a lap or two. That's when we were running V6s. Took it a lap or two to get up to speed. Had a caution. Run third or fourth. 
sit on the pole, run third or fourth, something like that. Started a cup race, you know, it wasn't good. You know, just rode in the back all day long. Run, run hard. But anyway, I'll never forget, and I'd, I'd had it about up here too. I was I was getting back in my, you know, it was getting rough again. And, and don't get me wrong, we, we worked hard and we tried to run good. And, uh, <laughs> and I tell this story, and I hope they don't take it wrong, but I remember Dale Inman, me and Robbie, we get along good, and me and Robbie knew what was going on, and we knew we were trying to make it better. And Dale Emmon, he, you know, he says, uh, I don't know what we're going to do, Rick. He said, we've changed everything but the steering wheel. <laughs> I said, yep, I reckon we have. I said, but you know something? I don't know what to do either. Dale, I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing my best. I said, I'm running as hard as I can. I said, but you know something? I said, Richard Petty, seven-time Winston Cup champion, and this was in the Indianapolis garage. I thought it was kind of funny, but they didn't think it was that funny. I said, Richard Petty, seven-time Winston Cup champion, 200 races. He couldn't drive this son of a bitch. So how do you expect me to drive it? <laughs> <laughs> so that pretty much wound me up. <laughs> and they let you go? <laughs> well, in the year I was. Yeah. <laughs> we had to finish the year yeah, out. You know. Yeah, yeah. But I, yeah. I just said it like it was, you know. I said, dang, what am I going to do? I, I'm not the king, and you expect me to win every race. <laughs> okay, all right. How did Richard seem to handle retirement as a driver? Did you sense that it was difficult for him not to be in the car? I, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think he was ready. Okay. Yeah. I think he was. Uh, yeah. He got hurt quite a bit there at the end. Yeah. Uh, I just – and the competition was, like I'm saying, it, thing, things were changing. Here, things were happening – different than what he I could say he was used to you know I can see it now if I was you know I could see it now happening to people just when you're there so long things start changing your your mind goes to thinking different what you want how you want things to be Uh, you know it's just I think he was probably he'd had enough I think yeah he had had enough uh, and, and, and a great I mean there's none no better so what else did he have to prove? And I think, you know, there at the end, he wasn't running as good as he wanted to. And, you know, the Kings both run good. And, but it, it wasn't like it used to be. Yeah. So probably the best thing he did was to step down. And, and he's a heck of a team owner and a car owner. But I don't think, you know, I'm sure it's no different than me. I missed the competition. Yeah. Do I miss, you know, do I miss, uh, and I miss my friends. And I miss, you know, that competition. And, you know, I still dabble in it. I still race some. So I get that when I want. But it's not something that I got to to, to uh, make sponsors happy, uh, begging for money every year to make, oh, these, make yeah. this sport work for me. or for the, for, I mean, I don't miss none of that. I don't miss none of that. I, I just, just going out and doing what I like doing, driving that race car. There's nothing no better than that. But all the stuff that comes along with it now, that's why they got so many people working there, so they don't have to deal with all that stuff. I mean, yeah. just that's part of it, though. So it's it's different. So I, answer your question. I think he was ready to step out. I really do. After you parted ways with that team, you didn't run at the Cup or Bush level mm-hmm. anymore until '97. Was that by choice, or were you maybe looking and not? No, uh, that was. It, uh, you talking about with the the '27 car? 
think it was. Well, no, I mean, from 95, 96, you, you didn't, you. Right, it was. Yeah. Uh, I'm driving for, a, I'm trying to think of the gentleman's name. David Blair. David Blair. Yeah, yep. you came back and you did do some stuff for him. You did do some Bush stuff. Yep, yep. Uh, just enjoying it. That, okay. that, that was the deal. I know David Blair. I know David wanted to. He bought all the junior stuff. Yeah. Yep. And we had a good hot rod. Uh, you know, uh, uh, bought all the junior stuff. Had Fords. Had Yates building the motors. Uh, you know, had two or three guys on the team. That was about it. And uh, but his his deal was wanting to move on. And uh, I drove for him for uh, had Shorty was working there, and uh, you know we had a different crew chief just about every every time we went and ran it. But but it worked out okay. We we ran like we probably should have run. Uh, and and then I think they they were looking for they were looking for a full time gig and sponsors and uh, they put uh, I forget the, gent- the boy's name but he, he he passed away something happened that that went in that car which was good for them they had yeah, a full time yeah. gig he was a big time name and hoping it was going to happen but but I you know I did that I just I wasn't looking to step up and go nowhere you know I, I, to, to be honest with you I'd, I'd uh, you know I'd had a uh, the only thing I might would have done was went back and drove for Morgan McClure if they'd asked me, you know, because that's how much I loved them. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, but I didn't have – I mean, I enjoyed going racing. I enjoyed being around my, my, my friends. But I seen, I seen things changing too. And, I, and, and I'm back up. I'm very, very fortunate, you know. I, I seen so many guys that were there that all they had was racing. That's how they made a living. Without racing, they didn't. They they couldn't make a living. I'm not saying they couldn't, but that's what they did. I was very blessed because I could. I, I was, you know, through my family businesses and my own businesses. I didn't have to have racing to, to just to be there and try to make a dollar. And uh, so I could kind of pick and choose. And I'll be honest with you, what I went through there for three or four years was on the rough times. I was okay without getting back there again and going through that same deal. Because I mean, I wasn't gonna go get a ride, and everything was gonna be good. Yeah, a top-notch car at that time and point wasn't available. None of them were available, and so I said, you know, I'm just gonna go have some fun, enjoy myself, take take what I get, run. I got to go to Indy, run Indy. Never had run Indy in my life. Uh, got to go there and and do things driving for Blair. That that was good. It was good, you know, and uh, I didn't have a problem with it. Now, what is your fan? What what do you do here in Bartow? Uh, not anymore, but for years and years we were in the construction business. We uh, worked in the phosphate mines and built a lot of roads around here in Polk County. That's the county that I'm in. Uh, we're in the cattle business, citrus business. Uh, once we got out of construction business, we got into the heavy equipment business. We, when I say construction business, we had big bulldozers. You know, that's what we're in. We we buy and sell. You know, we're in the heavy equipment business, used equipment business. Do some manufacturing. Do a little bit of everything, and then and. And then I took on uh, being a, uh, you know, a commissioner for, uh, for this county, and uh, enjoy that. I'm not a politician, but I enjoy, I enjoy bringing. I've been in business for 40 years, been self-employed, and uh, I enjoy bringing that that to the table when it comes to our county, bringing some common sense and, you know, just that kind of stuff to to the government because sometimes you look around here, there's not a lot. Well, I was going to ask. And I don't want to get into politics, but what possessed you? <laughs> what possessed you easy to get question. into politics? That's an easy answer. 
you know, I kind of say it this, and I'll, I'll tell you a story. I'd rather be holding the, holding the uh, steering wheel in this bus than sitting back there riding, and, and if you understand what I'm saying. I'd rather have some say-so in the government here than not having no say-so at all. Yeah. But, you know, in our cattle business, we own a lot of property around here. <clears throat> and uh, back in the, back in the uh, uh, 08, 07, when the boom had hit, or when the crash hit, uh, I was going to change some stuff around, and we were in the county. In case I ever want to build houses or something. We're in the cattle business. We never did. But but in case I wanted to put houses on some of this property, because they were building houses everywhere. Uh, see what I had to do to get the zoning changed or the land use changed. So come down to county, and I knew in about 30 minutes that I was barking up the wrong tree here. It was going to be an undertaking. So I went across the street to the city, annexed in the city, and got it all done. But just things like that making me think that, you know, we need some, you know, just need common sense. And, you know, this and this this country, you know, or this county or this state, just are all above what I just said. You just need some good common sense, you know, and, and you know, that, that's what needs to be brought to it. So that's what got me going. Like I said, I'd rather be part of, part of it, trying to make some of the policies and issues than just sitting there waiting on somebody to tell me what, what I got to do. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace. 1989, Rick Wilson has a couple of Bush Series wins under his belt. He won that year for Charlie Henderson at Bristol and at Dover. So he's walking a little bit taller in the garage. And when silly season rolls around, he starts getting phone calls from people. Despite the fact that things were going well with Morgan McClure Motorsports, he and Tony Glover got along great, just like he talked about last week. They understood each other, and they were on the same page. Larry McClure has given him this chance in the sport when maybe nobody else would. So it wasn't like Rick was unhappy with the four car, but Ray Mock, Dick Rahilly, and Butch Mock came in, and they made him an offer financially that he didn't think that he could refuse. It was more money than he'd ever thought possible for just driving a race car. And he accepts the deal. Well, you have to admit, Rick, money and more of it can be a strong lure to anybody. Well, according to Rick, he knew in his heart before the 1989 season ever ended, before he left Morgan McClure Motorsports, before he ever drove the very first lap for Ray Mock, he felt like he'd made a mistake. As we've discovered time and time again here on this show, the things that people say during our interviews, a lot of times don't just apply to racing. They're lessons that apply to life. Well, as I said earlier, uh, Rick, money can be a very strong lure. But in this case, I think Rick Wilson discovered that there were things more important than money. Well, Rick did say in this interview, don't chase money just for money's sake. And that's a road that I've been down on at least a couple of different occasions in my life. And it wound up biting me squarely in the butt, but that's a lesson that both Rick Houston and Rick Wilson learned <laughs> the hard way. <laughs> Rick spent the 1990 season with Ray Mock, then moved over to the Stavola brothers in 1991. He ran the 1992 Daytona 500 with the Stavolas, 
and then was fired. And all that Rick would say was that he got hoodooed in the vernacular of anybody from our part of the country in the Southeast <laughs> United States getting hoodooed ain't good. <laughs> no, it ain't. You don't want to be hoodooed down here. That's for sure. Then Rick talked about how difficult the rest of the 1992 season was for him to be sitting on the sidelines like that. As I mentioned earlier, Jeannie had made the trip to Florida with me and she was sitting at a table in the corner of Rick's office. And to my knowledge, that was the first interview that she's ever heard me do from start to finish. Now she's walked through the room when I'm doing one on zoom or something. But that's the first one that I guess she'd ever actually heard me do all the way through. But when Rick Wilson said that he thought that they couldn't have a race without him there, <laughs> me and Jeannie both laughed out loud because, again, that's something that I've dealt with in my own life. And that's something that I've talked about on the show before. I was the Bush Series editor for Winston Cup Scene. I wrote the book on the history of the Bush Series. And so I thought that the Bush series revolved around me. And then one day I'm on the outside looking in and the very next week, the Bush series raced without me there. <laughs> Steve. Well, <laughs> I tell you what, Rick, I spent so many years in this sport that when I finally did retire after seeing basically went out of business, I found myself looking ways to cling to the sport yeah. to do what i always had done my entire life and i was very fortunate in the fact that the internet was in existence and i had a chance to do stories for web pages and uh being a podcast now and then so i knew your feeling rick it's tough to let go completely it really is again that was a shock that went deep down to my soul and it eventually caused me to really reconsider my priorities and what was really important in my life. And I can honestly say that I'm much better off for it. And also doing this podcast, it is a much different thing to feel like you have to do a podcast and to feel like you really want to do a podcast. Yeah, I understand that perfectly. And I tell you what about Rick Wilson back then. Nobody really knew why he got fired. But the thing that we all found to be strange, and by that I mean the media, is that it didn't have a ride after that. He wasn't picked up by somebody to continue his Winston Cup career. Now, that was a great mystery. I'll admit that we were just befuddled. But he had proven his ability to win a race. What is he doing on the sideline? Very strange. Well, the 1992 Hooters 500 weekend, it was announced that Rick Wilson wasn't going to be on the sidelines anymore. He was going to be taken over as the driver for Petty Enterprises after Richard Petty retires. And there were a couple of connections there that helped swing things Rick's way when it came to getting that ride. Now, Kyle Petty, we talked last week about some of the young guns at that time kind of bonding. Kyle Petty was a part of that group. So was Rick. So, you know, that was kind of a connection that, that people knew about, but this is one that I had not been aware of. Petty Enterprises crew chief, Robbie Loomis was from Florida and Robbie had worked for Rick on his race car when 
Robbie was 16 years old. It was Robbie's first job in the sport. I did not know that. I didn't either, but the connection was there. Let me offer you another reason why Rick was hired. At the press conference where he was announced to be the driver, Linda Petty, Richard's late wife, was there. And she spoke up and she said, Rick Wilson represents family values. And he's the kind of driver we want. Well, she pointed out something that most of us thought about Rick. You never saw Rick in the middle of any controversy within racing or even out of racing. He was just a straight arrow type of guy. And Linda recognized that. And I think she had her influence on getting him hired. Well, Steve, the fact of the matter is that nobody was ever going to replace Richard Petty. As Rick pointed out, there were a couple of ways to look at that situation. Now, on the positive side, Rick Wilson was the very first one to fill the seat after Richard Petty retired. So that said something about his ability. They didn't just go out and pick up the first Yahoo off the side of the street. They got somebody that they felt could actually do the job. But on the other side, there were a lot of moving parts to being successful in that car. If you get in that car and don't do very well, is it because of a loose nut behind the steering wheel? (laughs) (laughs) Or is it because the team wasn't where it needed to be? If you get in the car and start running like Jack the bear, if you get in the car and start dominating, you also run the risk of making Richard Petty look bad for running the way that he did the last few years of his career. So it was really a catch 22 situation. Yeah, I agree. Rick was caught between the rock and hard place as the old cliche goes. But I also think that many of us in the media realized that Rick, uh, wasn't going to struggle, but we didn't think he'd be an instant winner in that car because reality had set in. Look how many years Richard had driven that car and not won a race. Now, my personal belief is no one driver is going to step into that car and turn it into an instant winner, not with the situation being what it was over there. We talked three episodes back about Rick's eighth place finish in that car at Sears Point, which turned out to be his best finish with that team. Rick was hoping that maybe things were turning around, and he did finish 11th at Dover a couple of races later, 12th the next race at Pocono, and then 11th at Daytona. But after that, their results pretty much took a nosedive. And in mid-August, Rick ran the Bush Series race at Michigan for Charlie Henderson's team. He qualified fourth, and he finished fifth behind Mark Martin, Robert Presley, Terry Labonte, and Steve Grissom. And at that time, if you ran competitively and finished fifth behind those teams and those drivers, you'd really done something. So, again, the Bush Series gives Rick a little bit of a shot of confidence But the next day, he starts 29th in the Winston Cup race for Petty Enterprises, and he finishes 28th, nine laps down, again behind Mark Martin. And as far as Mark Martin goes, he was on a roll. That was the second of what would be four straight Winston Cup victories that season. And his Bush Series win at Michigan was the first of five consecutive wins in as many starts 
in that division. Now they weren't consecutive races because obviously Mark was a Winston cup record and didn't run a full Bush series schedule. So he won five straight starts during that same basic time frame. Things were going awesome for Mark Martin and Roush racing, but maybe not so much for Rick Wilson and petty enterprises. The next day, there's this big tire test at Indianapolis motor speedway, getting ready for the next year's inaugural brickyard 400. Richard took a number 43 car out on the track for a lap or two. He gets out of the car and presents it to the hall of fame there at Indy, which is great. But back in the garage, Rick and Dale Enman have a little bit of a conversation. Dale tells Rick that he's pretty much at a loss about what to do because they've changed everything, but the steering wheel. And you know, when somebody says that to a driver, it's pretty ominous. The writing is on the wall. <laughs> that means we're in trouble. <laughs> To which Rick replies, Richard Petty is a seven-time champion. He won 200 races, and he couldn't drive this son of a gun. So how do you expect me to? Wow. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I don't know if I would have said that, Rick, but but he has a point. He's got a point because, as I said earlier, Richard hadn't won with that team for years, and it didn't look like things changed so very much. I think this makes you wonder, especially after what Dale said to Rick, if the problem might not have been into the team and car preparation. Well, when two principals on a race team, Dale Inman being Dale Inman and having been around that team for so long and driver Rick Wilson, when they're talking to each other like that, it doesn't bode well. No. (laughs) And Rick did leave the team at the end of the year. And I want to emphasize that Rick in no way, shape, form, or fashion sounded like he was bitter with Richard or Robbie or even Dale. It just didn't work out. And honestly, I'm not real sure that anything was going to work out right off the bat for that team. And no matter what driver they put in that car, because I just don't think that anybody was going to replace Richard Petty and I'm not so sure that the team was in a position to run competitively right out of the box. I agree with you, Rick. It wasn't a very good situation for Rick with that team. And I think he discovered that, as you say, it, meant, it did not matter who the driver was. That conversation with Dale at Indianapolis indicated that the struggle was within the team. And as you said, no one driver was Rick going to turn that thing around? Rick did drive some Bush series stuff for Charlie Henderson in 1995 and 1997. And Rick also ran three cup races for David Blair in 1997. And then he failed to qualify for three races the following year in 1998. And that was it. As far as it came to Rick's Winston cup career, actually, Steve, he is still doing some late model stuff. We actually set up this interview while he was at the racetrack for one of his late model races. So he's still competitive. The thing about Rick is that he didn't have to race. He came back basically just to have some fun. Rick and his family owned a construction company. They were in the phosphate mines. They had cattle, they had citrus groves, they bought and sold heavy equipment. And now I'm not too sure about this one, but he's also a county commissioner 
in Polk County, Florida. Now, the name of the county is spelled P-O-L-K, which most people would pronounce Polk. But Rick Wilson pronounced it Polk County, and so it is Polk County. If that's what Rick says, that's what it is. So tell me, Rick, tell me where you live again, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Where I live is spelled Y-A-D-K-I-N. Yadkin, right? Yadkin. Now, that's how you would pronounce it. Anybody who lives here says Yakinville. 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 You got to say it real quick. Yakinville. Uh, that's that's getting close. <laughs> this segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace. And first things first, I want to play this clip. This is Russ Catlin interviewing Buddy Schumann and Joe Weatherly going into the 1955 Southern 500 at Darlington Raceway. This is Russ Catlin speaking to you from Darlington's International Raceway, where next week, perhaps the greatest activity in commences, the uh, time trials for the Southern 500. I have here with me a man who certainly, if he will talk, should know a lot about it. He's a race driver who has thrilled to race fans, and I believe practically in the country. He has won plenty of races, but he will not drive in this race. And the reason? Because he is NASCAR's chief inspector, and he's the fellow who says whether these cars are stock or not. Buddy Schumann from Charlotte, North Carolina. How are you, buddy? Fine, Russ. Uh, Buddy, you've been out here working pretty hard the last few days. How do you like that new inspection area? Well, it's a whole lot better than we had last year. I think it's going to work out fine. I'm going to have a lot more help this year than I had last year. Yes, uh, we just got the news from Bill French yesterday that uh, some experts coming down from Cornell University to uh, help you. What do you think yeah, about we've that? we've got some safety experts from up there, and we also got some automotive engineers out of Detroit that's going to help us. Well, after all, uh, buddy, I think that's what stock car racing is for, and it certainly serves its purpose here at Darlington. Uh, any opinions on the race? Uh, favorite cars? Well, uh, it'll be a lot more competition this year than it was last. I look for the speeds to be from 5 to 10 miles an hour faster on the overall 500. I look for the qualifying time this year to be uh, around 114, 15 miles an hour. Last year it was 108 point something, I think. And to pick a favorite would be impossible. Uh, We just uh, got word that we got about 10 Fords entered and uh, they're going to be real good forwards, and we all uh, I hear, I'm, this is uh, not for sure, but I hear that maybe we'll have some Mercury's in that we didn't have last year, and uh, we'll have uh, something like 20 or 25 Chevrolets, I think, that there wasn't a Chevrolet entered last year. And, of course, we'll have the usual Buicks, Oldsmobiles, Cadillacs, Chryslers, and all that, and uh, we already have over a full field of entries it's already entered this year, and it should be a terrific race. In other words, uh, it's a wide-open race this year if there ever was one, right? Uh, more wide-open than any 500 I've ever seen before. 
Well, thanks, uh, uh, thanks a million, buddy. I have a fellow standing over here. I want to say a word to him. We're just about out of time here. I sort of imagine he's going to drive one of these automobiles. You also uh, have heard of him, uh, Joe Weatherly from Norfolk, Virginia. How are you, Joe? Hi, Rust. Joe, what are you driving this year? Got a 55 Ford. How do you like the Fords? Oh, it's a wonderful car. I've been driving Fords ever since I've been racing automotive. And I think the 55 Ford this year has got something up on the other part of the lightweight automobiles and has a good contestant to run a little bit longer for 500 miles than the heavy automobiles. Well, now that's, that's well spoken as a member of the Ford team. I might say not official Ford factory team, but there is some awfully good Fords here that's going to run. Uh, your competition, what do you expect? Chevrolet, Oldsmobile, or what? Well, I think the Buick will be a greater competition than anything on the field. I uh, just noticed Buck Baker out there warming up a few laps a while ago, and his car is looking real good. Well, thanks a lot, Joe. That was Joe Weatherly speaking to you, who will be driving in the Southern 500 this year, and previously we talked to Buddy Schumann, NASCAR's chief inspector. This is Russ Catlin from Darlington International Raceway. I got to be honest with you, from the very first time that I heard that clip, it just gave me chills to hear Joe Weatherly's voice because I don't know that I had ever heard it before. Certainly had never heard Buddy Schumann's voice and Russ Catlin to hear his voice and to know what he meant to this sport in its early days. I just thought it was so cool. You know, it's, it's less than four minutes long, but this is an important part of history that does need to be preserved. I would like to welcome Ken Martin to the show. Ken, your job just sounds awesome. You are the director of historical content for NASCAR productions. That's right up our alley. Yeah, I've, I'm, I'm the luckiest guy around. I, I, I'm uh, uh, able to, to look and have access to all of our video history, uh, audio history, and I work with all of our producers and writers on historic documentaries and research footage, but then also uh, find footage. And, and one, of, one of my jobs is to find all the historic audio and video that's out there. <clears throat> so we have an archive in Charlotte of about 200,000 hours of NASCAR footage. And it goes all the way back to uh, Bill France Sr. racing on the beach in 1936 to, you know, to last uh, couple of weeks ago's Phoenix race. So we have a broad history, <clears throat> although we know that the, the racing in the 50s, 60s, 70s, there isn't nearly as much as from the 1980s on. But uh, we try to we try to find uh, uh, you know all of the resources that we can, and then once we get them, we try to figure out how do we turn these into stories. How do we how do we take this content and create the stories? And of course, we also produce all of the videos and everything that's in the NASCAR Hall of Fame. So um, yeah, but my job is is like you know a dream it's uh, I, I know how blessed i am to have it and uh, uh i've been kind of in the tv production business for about 40 years going back to espn days in 1982 but uh, yeah it, this is uh 
you know, I, I don't, I don't know if I'll ever retire because why would I, you know, because it's something that I, it's something that I love so much. So, well, you know, I just picture you sitting in your office all day and just watching old races. And I get paid to do that. I mean, it'd be like, you know, uh, working at the chocolate factory and you get to test Hershey bars all day. You know, it's like, uh, I can't, uh, I can't believe it, but you know, but as I said, I, I try to take my job very seriously because I know that preserving our history and people like you and Steve and, and, and others work so hard to keep our history alive. And, and, and so anytime that we can see how a story from the past ties to a current story, we want to bring up the past. We want to talk about our legends and our heroes and the people that when we were kids were, you know, larger than life. And, uh, and we just want to keep their memory alive. And, and part of my goal too, is that we tell a accurate story. Hey, Ken, we've got a clip here that you provided for us. How did you come across this clip? It's the first time that this clip had been played in public. Best we can figure out there's a case. How'd you come across it, Ken? Well, this came about through a mutual friend of ours, Ben White. And, and, and Ben was down at Talladega at the uh, International Motorsports Hall of Fame, and he was talking to Betty Carlin, if you remember Betty, who worked down there at the Hall of Fame, and she had a box full of old audio tapes that she was thinking about throwing out because she said, we don't have any way to play these. And they're these little reel-to-reel tapes. And so Ben was like, do not throw them away. I'll take them. And he, Ben, got them and brought them back to his home and then years later when i came to work at nascar in 2008 ben got in touch with me and he said hey do you think you all have a way to transfer these tapes and i said we'll figure it out we'll find out and so um these it was it was a hundred or more tapes of don o'reilly interviewing people for his old mutual racing uh, roundup show. And so there were interviews with Bobby Isaac and with Curtis Turner and, and just, you know, all of our heroes of the, of the 60s. But then there was this one tape that I saw that was, and it was marked 1955, Catlin Weatherly. And I was like, man, this is, and, and that was the oldest tape in that batch. And so we transferred it and, and, re, and recorded it. And, and we, you know, the other tapes that we found, like the interview with Bobby Isaac, we've played that in some of our documentaries and things and in some of the other historic clips, but there never was exactly the right place to play this uh, Catlin uh, clip. So we've just kept it in the archive and looking for the right outlet to be able to, to release it. And, and uh, Rick got in touch with me and, and our folks gave us, gave me the approval to release it. And so uh, it is, it is the rarest of the rare. 
And when you think about the long-term impact of Russ Catlin, who was a publicity director and promoter at Darlington, and we still have the Russ Catlin Media Awards, and then Buddy Schumann, who, again, the Buddy Schumann Award has been around for 65 years, and then, of course, Joe Weatherly, a two-time champion and member of the NASCAR Hall of Fame. But these names are names that we've heard throughout the years, but were, you know, but we never heard their voice. And and sometimes we just hear about the award, but we don't really go behind the curtain and see, you know, what an impact that Catlin, Schumann, and Weatherly had had on the sport, especially in the 50s. Well, I don't know. I'm not sure if I feel comfortable giving Ben White that much credit. Um, <laughs> well, you know, Rick, I guess you're the editor here. So, so, you know, if, uh, but no, but, but, but Ben, you know, like, I think we all do, we recognize that, that there are parts of our history that can never be replaced. And so Ben was like, I'm going to save these tapes. And I just hope that somewhere down the line, I'll find somebody that can figure out what to do with them. So like we all do, we've got stuff stacked up in our garage or in our basement of like, I don't know what we'll ever do with this, but I know I can't throw it away. I can't, I can't let it be destroyed and, uh, and, and we'll figure out what to do with it. Just to tell the listeners, Russ Cadillac said was one of the first public relations officials in NASCAR, worked at Darlington, uh, but he was also a journalist before that. Buddy Schumann was a driver, actually drove several races for NASCAR, and I think if I'm right, he won the first NASCAR race held outside the United States in Canada. And uh, from there, he went on to be some kind of administrator for NASCAR. He was also working with Ford Motor Company to try to help Ford uh, get back into racing like they wanted to do. Yeah, exactly. Buddy, um, you know, was on the board when NASCAR was formed in 1948 as a driver advisor, and he was also a technical advisor. So not only was he talented behind the wheel, uh, he was a great mechanic. Uh, He ran the uh, Schumann Thompson Speed Shop in Charlotte, and so he was very well respected as a mechanic, as well as from a technical standpoint. And one neat bit of trivia: in 1948, NASCAR ran an exhibition race before they ran their first sanctioned points paying race down at Cocoa Beach, Florida. And Buddy Schumann won that race. So Buddy was the winner of the first NASCAR race, although it wasn't a points-paying event. But then the first points-paying event on the beach at Daytona, Buddy finished fourth, um, and Red Byron won the race. So Buddy was around, you know, when the sport was given birth. Buddy Buddy was around and part of it. And he and Bill France Sr. had had a close relationship. And, and obviously, you know, to have that uh, 
inspector job with NASCAR showed his expertise, but also Ford recognized, you know, Buddy's talent and and had signed him on to, to sort of be a technical advisor, like you said, Steve, of when they were trying to relaunch their, their racing program back in, in 1955, 1956. And, you know, uh, Russ was at Darlington. He came in 1953 and worked till 1969. And he was not only a great journalist, but he was a great promoter. And, and Russ was an enthusiastic guy that felt like that every person in the garage area deserved a story. You know, he talked about the heroes that were drivers, the heroes that were mechanics. And, and he just, he, he could capture, you know, the bravery of these guys. And really, Russ was so influential in the Southern 500 becoming a national event, you know, uh, because Russ, before he came to Darlington, had worked at Indianapolis. He was very familiar with uh, open wheel uh, uh, racing. So he had the respect of journalists all over the country. So when Russ would put out a story about Darlington, that meant something. It had some weight to it. It had some, some gravity to it. But Russ loved the characters of the sport. And, you know, and, and, you know, we know the legend and lore of Curtis Turner and Joe Weatherly and, and Fireball Roberts and, and, and the people of that era. And a lot of that uh, was shaped by, by Russ. And, you know, just to show his lasting impact, uh, when Humpy Wheeler went to Darlington as an intern and worked with Russ Catlin, and it was that influence of Russ as a promoter that that sort of launched Humpy's career, and we all know what a great promoter and everything Humpy is, but, you know, Russ was sort of an influential uh, uh, motivator back then, so, you know, that, <clears throat> that just shows how the impact uh, has has lasted for 70 years, you know, of, of, of how he influenced the sport. So um, I'm glad that we could hear Russ's voice and Buddy's voice and Joe's voice because it makes them real. It makes them come alive. All we've, you know, uh, Rick and Steve, you all have dedicated your life to writing stories about these these folks. But to hear their voice, you know, really you know, gives us a different dimension of them. And um, I hope that in the future we can dig up some more clips like this, uh, you know, for, for you all to, to talk about, because I just think, I, I, I just think it does add a different, uh, a different dimension to, to their character. Well, Steve, I don't know about you, but what I heard Ken just say is that he's offering us more clips. <laughs> In the future, <laughs> that's what I took away from what if he, just if said. he is. If he is, let's hold him to it. All right, let's, 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 let's hold him to it. 
you're on the hook and I'm railing you. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, as I said, you know, in the future, uh, we've got some some big events coming up and and, uh, you know, I, I, I like you all, I love to talk about the old stuff and 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 anytime we can give something to your audience that they may have never heard before or never seen before or or didn't know about the influence of somebody like a Russ Catlin man I, I everybody wins everybody everybody benefits from that well, I did want to go back and check out the results for the 1955 Southern 500 Darlington. And to do that, the place to go, because this was before Winston Cup scenes time in the sport, Joe Weatherly actually qualified seventh for this race. And he wound up leading twice for a total of 141 laps. And he actually had a lead of more than a lap over Herb Thomas. He was on the way to winning. But his left front wheel collapsed and he went into the guardrail. Herb took over the lead at that point and cruised the rest of the way to the victory. And that was his third in the Southern 500. Believe it or not, this was just Joe's third career cup start. You know, he had raced in modifieds and everything. His first cup start came at Darlington in 1951, driving a Hudson owned by a guy that we're all familiar with, Junie Donlevy. Junie Donlevy owned a Hudson, and Joe ran in 1951. Then in 1955, he ran once again, and then Darlington was his third career start. But Joe was already well-known as a modified racer, and as a motorcycle racer, I mean, he was three, he won three AMA nationals. And so Joe and, and Joe was from Norfolk, Virginia. Of course, we know Junie was from, from Richmond and Joe had a great mutual friend and Paul Sawyer who helped, you know, who helped Joe along early in his career. So, yeah, but, but these two Fords, one was driven by Joe, one was driven by Curtis Turner, and they were owned by a guy named Charlie Schwamm, who owned the Ford dealership in Charlotte. And Ford had given Charlie these two cars for Joe and Curtis to race, and they painted them purple. I mean, they were they were and 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 Schwamm was quite a promoter. He called them, you know, the wild hogs. And and on the car, he had this picture of this wild boar on the side and i've even seen a picture of like joe weatherly holding a pig in his lap looking out the window you know kind of like jocko flacco but joe had had this little pig but really the schwann team then became the DePaulo team which then became holman moody so so this was the this was the launching pad for for you know, one of the greatest teams in, in history, but Ford was backing them and Buddy Schumann, you know, they, they were so impressed by Buddy that they were going to have Buddy be part of uh, this team. But unfortunately, Buddy died in a, in a, a hotel fire in Hickory the night before the season opening race for 1956 
uh, Joe was in his hotel room. Uh, the room caught fire. Joe, um, I'm sorry, Buddy Schumann died of, of smoke inhalation. So, um, but yeah, uh, you know, again, we love to dig back deep and, and find and find those, you know, tidbits. But uh, yeah, uh, uh, the Schwamm wild hog team and uh, uh, Turner and Weatherly. And of course, their friendship was was legendary. So, well, something that I thought was interesting in this clip, Russ referred to Buddy as a NASCAR inspector, the chief NASCAR inspector at the time. But in Greg Fielden's book, it says that Joe Weatherly's car was ranched by Buddy Schumann in this event. So do you know what the connection is there? There's a gentleman named George Schumann, uh, who is Buddy's nephew. And I live in, in Mint Hill, North Carolina, and George lives in Mint Hill. And so George is a wealth of knowledge about all things Buddy. He has a collection of newspaper clips and photos and, 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 and things about Buddy. And, and Buddy had run his final race as a driver, like in August of, of 55. And NASCAR had had Buddy as a technical advisor, but also at the same time, Buddy had gotten this job with Ford. And so I don't want to accuse him of double dipping, but he was kind of double dipping. You know what? I bet Joe's car didn't have much trouble going through inspection if Buddy was the crew chief and the chief technical inspector. Can you imagine something like that happening today? <laughs> Speaking of inspection, I thought it was very interesting in Russ's interview with Buddy that he was talking to Buddy about inspection and Buddy answered him by saying that they had recruited inspectors and engineers to come in and help him make sure the cars were strictly stock. <laughs> NASCAR has been fighting, been fighting an inspection battle ever since it was born. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you know and, and i think uh, i think you know buddy buddy saw an opportunity with ford but also you know as i said way back in 1948 nascar had used buddy as a technical advisor so they recognized that he knew you know and it, it was maybe like a Gary Nelson situation up, you know, Gary, Gary knew how to manipulate the rules. So why not put him in charge of the rules or when they brought Ray, when they brought, when they brought Ray Fox on, you know, again, guys that, you know, guys that had been in the garage area kind of know a lot of the tricks of the trade. And so, you know, but uh, yeah, the relationship between NASCAR and Buddy and Ford uh, you know, uh, may have, may have blurred some lines there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned the fact this interview was done probably in about September of 1955 and buddy did lose his life in a hotel fire in November of that same year. The buddy Schumann award was established in 1957 to recognize people 
and organizations who have contributed to the advancement of stock car racing. And that's an award that still goes on to this day. And then one of the most prestigious awards in motorsports journalism that is named after Russ Catlin and both seen and illustrated racked up their share of those. Deb Williams won two Catlins for seen. She was actually the first woman to win the Catlin. She was the first person to win two. And Deb not only won two Catlins, she won them two consecutive years. I believe in 1990 and 1991. Mark Ashenfelter also won for seen. Mike Hembry won two for seen. Ree White and then Chris Johnson won two riding Catlins for Illustrated. And then on the photography side, the Catlin Award was first presented in photography in 1997. And our good friend Phil Cavelli won three of them. Then Bill Anderson won for scene, and so did David Griffin. Jim Fluharty won the Catlin for Illustrated in 1999, and then Chuck Yadmark took it home in 2004. And then on the industry side, the Buddy Schumann Award, that's an important, important award on the industry side. I think that says a lot for who Russ Catlin was, who Buddy Schumann was, and then, of course, Joe Weatherly as a NASCAR Hall of Famer. That's why, to me, this clip was so important. Yeah, I mean, uh, the guys that uh, guys that shape the history of our sport, and and their influence is held, you know, seventy years later. We're still, you know, you you seek these awards, you seek these names, but uh, you know, this is sort of getting to their to their genesis, to their beginning, and uh, and and the fact that that we hear them speaking uh, again just takes us back in time. And uh, uh, whether you're you're seventeen or seventy or whatever, just to to think this is the world of 1955. This is this is these were the characters. And these were the men that we that we stand on their shoulders today for that that built built the sport. You know, that is really, really a terrific look back at the way it was. And to hear the voices, like you said, of the men who helped shape the sport. I don't think there's anything better than what we just heard. Ken, thank you so much for joining us. I truly do appreciate it's, it. Yeah, it's been my absolute pleasure, and uh, you know, hold me to my word. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll work with uh, with our folks, and we'll find some other interesting clips. And uh, you know, I, because I, it does us no good holding on to it. We've got to let it go. We've got to, we've got to let people hear this, and uh, you know, and finding an avenue of like your your podcast here where we know your listeners are loyal fans who who appreciate this. And I know how much you and Steve appreciate this. And you know, we we just need to find the 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 right clips to tell the right stories and let people uh uh people enjoy it. So uh, it's my pleasure, my privilege. I'm Ken Schrader. 
Hi, I'm Hutch Strickland. Hey, this is the original Mr. Excitement, Jimmy Spencer. Hi, this is Tommy Houston. Hi, I'm Larry McReynolds, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. This podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace. And Steve, this week before we end, I would really like to send our most sincere get well wishes to Steve Richards, the longtime pit reporter for PRN. And he's been Mark Garrow's producer for years and years and years on the shows that Mark does. Steve also contributed a lot of clips to the firestorm series that we did earlier this year. And Steve is in the hospital right now, battling COVID. Here is my Steve Richards story. Of course, everybody that listens to this show knows that I'm a big fan of the Andrew Griffith show and Steve Richards has actually purchased a radio from the estate of Francis Bavier. Now, do you know that name? Do you know who Francis Bavier is? Oh yes, I sure do. Who was she? Aunt B. Aunt B. So Steve Richards owns Aunt B's radio. How about that? I did not know that. <laughs> oh, well, of course, I have begged him for that doggone thing for years now. And I think Steve values aggravating me about it and me going right back at him, offering everything under the sun. He values that more than he does the radio. <laughs> I, I would agree with you there. And last week I'd heard that he was in the hospital. So I sent him a message on Facebook and I told him, I said, hang in there, man. I don't need rant B's radio that bad. (laughs) (laughs) Well said, Rick. So Steve, yes, absolutely. Hang in there. You get better. I look forward to seeing you to track again. And you hang on to that Aunt B radio for as long as you think you need to buddy. Richard took a number 43 car out on the track for a lap or two. Richard took a number Richard took a number 43 car out on the track for a lap or two. He gets out and he presents it and he presents it to the Hall of Fame, which was great. And he presents it to the Hall of Fame. He gets out of the car and presents it to the Hall of Fame there and he and he presents it to the Hall of Fame there at Indy, which is great. 